Welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello! Hi! This week's guest episode comes from the true crime podcast, The Jury Room, where I join host Kevin to discuss the mystery revolving around D.B. Cooper. Ooh, good one. Yeah. So this will be a double feature as it includes Kevin's episode detailing the information on D.B. Cooper, as well as the follow-up episode that I am a part of where we kind of discuss the theories of who we think D.B. Cooper may have actually been. Who's JFK? (laughs) Never heard that theory? (laughs) (laughs) We all know it's Loki. Yeah, it's fine. So if you enjoy these episodes, I encourage you to visit the link to the jury room in the show notes and subscribe to hear more of his great content. And on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime. Enjoy the show. The Oracle Network. Warning. The following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Every year, more than 5,000 killers get away with murder. Since 1980, more than 250,000 cases have gone cold, where either a murder took place or a missing person was considered to have experienced serious bodily harm. Needless to say, there's a cold case crisis in America. But we believe families deserve answers. Victims deserve a voice. And no one should be a statistic. I'm Anna Eaglin. I'm Jim Brown. I'm Ashley Fujawa, and we're the co-founders of Uncovered, where we're empowering the true crime community to turn their interests into advocacy by combining all publicly available information with an engaged membership to crowdsource gaps in the investigation of unsolved cases of the murdered or missing. By combining all information in a comprehensive database, visualizing the timeline of events, and overlaying each onto a map of locations, we're bringing case details together in a way that's never been done before. Our members are able to connect with fellow citizen detectives, learn techniques on what to look for and how to help, and subscribe to the cases that interest them to be updated when new information is found. We count on active participation from our members to submit their research publicly or anonymously through a verification and substantiation process. Together, we can make a difference. Together, we can make a difference. Together, we can make a difference. Will you join us? For more information, or to see how you can help, please visit Uncovered.com. Hey, Kevin, it's Caitlin here from Complicit. As you know, Hillary and I love a mystery, especially a historical one. And this case defines a mystery. Who was the real D.B. Cooper? And how did he have the cojones to do what he did? I think most people would assume he didn't survive the jump, given the incredibly inhospitable conditions he was free-falling into. And rookie mistake to have your backup shoot a training one. And that money that was found, that's kind of all the evidence you need right there. Or is it? No body was ever found, was it? To me, D.B. Cooper seems like he really pulled off a gentleman's crime. I mean, you put on a suit and tie, have a classy drink, 
calmly call over a flight attendant to relay the message that, oh, by the way, I'm going to need four parachutes and $200,000. K thanks. Almost reminds me of that show Lupin. And even the parallel with the comic book may be inspiring his alias. It's a case that puts a smile on my face because it's one where, in a strange way, you kind of want the bad guy to win. And he clearly got away with it, even if he didn't make it. But now, seriously, where is Lauren DeMolo? Let's get the FBI on that one, stat. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. Well, welcome back to another Jury Room Aftermath episode. On today's episode, I am joined by Lindsay from the Ye Old Crime Podcast, which is also another member of the Oracle Network. Make sure you go and check out the Oracle Network, as well as the Ye Old Crime Podcast. Lindsay, say hi. How are you doing today? And introduce yourself. Hi. Uh, I'm honored to be here. So, um, as Kevin mentioned, I'm Lindsay. I'm one of the hosts of Yield Crime Podcast, which is a show that I do with my sister, where we cover historic crimes that take place pre-1900. So, we've covered cases from, like, witch trials to... Um, poisoners, so kind of a variety of cases, um, and yeah, it's uh, it's been really interesting finding all these different cases that I had never heard of before in history that are very interesting. But yeah, oh, I'm sure, and the way that they handled their business, you know, before the 1900s, and and the way crime was dealt with was a completely different uh, animal in itself, right? Yeah. And, you know, depending on where you were as well, like that would also kind of determine how they dealt with the crimes as well. Because, you know, there are some places where, you know, they were hanging people until fairly recently, you know, like the 1920s. Um, And then there are other places where they're just kind of like, we'll just put you in jail forever or we'll burn you at the stake. It kind of depends on what your crime was and <laughs> where you were in history. So um, yeah, it's interesting to kind of um, go through and read about the different crimes and then also discover how similar so many of them are, even though they're not, they didn't occur like in the same country or the same time period. Like it's just, it's fascinating how history has this way of repeating itself, even um, when it's different people in different places. So we all have that kind of common thread where there are certain crimes that people just continue to do, assuming that they're going to be the ones that get away with it. And then <laughs> they don't. <laughs> right. So what would be your most either interesting or weirdest thing that you have found before the 1900s? So one of the weirdest things that I've covered was back, I think it was prior to the 1800s in England, specific and also in specifically in France. They did it a lot more in France. They used to put animals on trial for certain crimes. Um, so 
particularly pigs, which I feel very bad about the pigs, but they would put them on trial like if they attacked a child or if they, um, you know, ruined some crops or something. Um, some of the funniest crimes were they tried to try, a, I guess, a infestation of weevils in England because they had gotten into some a vineyard and destroyed a bunch of grapes that they were going to use to make um, communion wine. Okay. <laughs> and so how, they were, but, but I mean, how would you go about putting an animal or even a, like an insect, like a weevil on trial? Yeah. And I, what happened was like back in the middle ages and things like that, their conception of, uh, religion was that everything is one of God's creatures. So in order to um, be able to try an animal or something, you'd have to prove that they did something and basically excommunicate them from the church. So then you could punish them. It was <laughs> okay, the weirdest. It's the weirdest thing. Cause it's like, okay, obviously if you're no longer like one of God's creatures, then we can punish you. And we're going to like exterminate you for, you know, ruining God's crops of, you know, wine grapes and things like that. So, but yeah, it was extremely bizarre going through and reading about some of these cases of how they would try animals and stuff. And there was like a cow that they put on trial and they ended up burying it because (laughs) they were like, no one can have anything to do with this cow. You can't like take any of the meat. You can't take any of the hide to like make it into leather or anything. You know, we're just going to have to bury it. And it was, that is, that's something, that's something else. Man. <laughs> hey, let's, let's put an animal on trial and I mean, and not, you know, use the meat or, yep. you know, use the byproducts. Let's just bury it and call it a day. Yep. Well, that's an interesting, I'd never heard that before. Cause I mean, you know, <laughs> you, you learn little bits and pieces here, but you don't really know the inner workings unless you, you know, deep dive into the situations, right? Yep. Yep. So, well, I know you like a good mystery and on yes. today's episode, we are diving into the DB Cooper mystery, the conspiracy theory that is DB Cooper and the only known hijacking to not be solved in American history. What yep. are your theories before we dive into it? As I kind of mentioned before we started, I feel like it has to be someone who had an idea of what they were doing. Like someone who had some sort of experience, whether it's they used to be a pilot of some sort, or they had to have some sort of knowledge of how like a parachute works and things like that. And, uh, just because I don't think you're layman just walking off, like coming in off the street, your standard criminal would know, okay, we need to have like a certain height, you know, as far as safety concerns. So when I jump out of the plane, I'm not just going to like fly into the engine or something. And right. <laughs> you know? right. And that's, you know, knowing your altitudes and what you should be speed, uh, what your speed should be and so on and so forth is definitely knowledge that you're going to have to have to pull off a hijacking like this. Yeah, exactly. Like your standard, you know, bank robber isn't necessarily going to know that versus someone who has some sort of experience in, I'm trying to think of the word. 
You know what I mean? <laughs> I a- absolutely aer- do. Aeronautics? I there we go. <laughs> I can't think of, I can't read your mind, but I know what you're trying to say, right? <laughs> you, you, you get where I'm going with that. <laughs> absolutely. So I was lucky to have some a friend of mine uh, record some stuff for us, uh, for everybody, Paige from the Reverie True Crime Podcast. Um, so I'm going to introduce you guys to her. And then uh, we're going to, she helped me with a couple of different people that I didn't cover within my episode um, because she has done her own episode, which I will link to that in the show notes. So that way, anybody who wants to go check that out, you're more than welcome to. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paige did a really great job on the episode as well. So let me introduce her to you guys and uh, we'll get into the episode. Hello, Kevin and listeners of the Jury Room Podcast. This is Paige from Reverie True Crime. First and foremost, I want to thank you, Kevin, for letting me record and send in some information, opinions, and to get your feedback. I also did an episode on D.B. Cooper and this mystifying, extremely mind-boggling event. So a lot of this information is coming from my episode, so you can interject and comment on anything at all. Hearing your opinions on the information will be so interesting. So that's Paige. And like I said, she did do her own episode. Um, So I know within my episode, I covered a few different suspects, um, but she's got one, which I will link for for pictures for reference for everybody below. So that way they can see what we're talking about. Um, But she has a couple of different people that I definitely think could be potential suspects. And this is other than, you know, what I had covered. So her first suspect that we're going to talk about uh, from Paige is uh, Robert Rackstraw. In the 1970s, he was guilty of grand theft. He had $75,000 in bad checks, and he may have killed his stepdad. Now, he was found innocent in his stepdad's murder. And after he was let go in 1978, he faked his own death. He made up lies, making a mayday from an airplane in Northern California. He was sentenced to two years in prison for check fraud and theft of an airplane. Robert was also a Vietnam veteran. Reported by the Mail, quote, Rackstraw was interviewed about his link to the case in 1979, where he was asked explicitly to state whether he was or wasn't D.B. Cooper. And with a wry smile visible across his face, he told the KNBC reporter, Uh, I'm afraid of heights. An Army vet from Indiana said that he used the skills that he learned to break the codes that were printed on letters that were allegedly written by D.B. Cooper in 1971 and 72. His findings track everything back to Robert Rackstraw. In 2016, there was a book written by Thomas J. Colbert and Tom Salasi, and it's called The Master Outlaw. They both investigated Robert Rackstraw's insane past five years. They, along with many others, were convinced he was D.B. Cooper. We may never know for sure because Robert did pass away 
in July of 2019 due to a heart attack. But what he said before he died was a little suspicious. So there were these FBI documents that were made public, and through those, we find out that the FBI agents had their sights set on Robert Rackstraw, and he was their main suspect this whole time. Robert was a U.S. Army pilot, he was a paratrooper, he was an explosives expert, as well as a CIA black ops man. After Robert Rackstraw died in 2019, Thomas J. Colbert, a 62-year-old cold case investigator, producer, and author from Ventura, California, got the secret bureau files, but he had to go through hell and a long legal fight for them. See, so kind of what you go back to is he definitely has a lot of experience within, you know, jumping out of planes, explosives, and so on and so forth. So he's definitely a viable suspect. Yeah. And if you look at his photographs from when he was younger, like kind of around the time that the D.B. Cooper crime took place, he does have very similar um, facial features to the... um, illustration that was made of the suspect and yeah like Paige said he has a lot of the experience that someone who would have who could have pulled this off would have needed to be able to you know know what they needed to be able to jump from the plane know what they were doing as far as making even if it was a fake bomb to make it look like a real bomb you know so he definitely had the skills that someone would have needed to be able to pull this off. So I can definitely see how he could be a very viable suspect. And it's interesting to hear that he was their main suspect and that they still couldn't pin anything on him. Right. Exactly. And it was, you know, obviously apparently clear that he had a, a criminal record, you know, as well as, you know, committing petty crimes, as well as committing, you know, potentially, you know, bigger crimes and being able to get away with it. Yep. Yeah, because that's something, too, that you have to consider about this case. Like, this is obviously someone where this wouldn't be their first crime. Like, I don't think you just wake up one day and you're like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go hijack oh, a plane. Right. <laughs> you that's know? on my bucket list. That's the first thing I'm going to do in my criminal <laughs> career is try to hijack a plane. Like, so, yeah, this is definitely something where it wouldn't be the person's first rodeo. So, um, yeah, the fact that he has a criminal history, the fact that he has all the skills um, from past uh military experience, you know, a working knowledge of how all that works. Yeah, I could definitely see how he would be one of their major suspects. He said, quote, this solves one of America's greatest criminal mysteries. Three separate intelligence community sources have told us that he was a CIA freelancer before and after the hijacking, and that's why they protected him. The new files, quote, leading FBI investigators who were convinced that Rackstraw could be Cooper. He got away with the ransom, invested it in property, and the FBI turned a blind eye, flat out lying and covering up his crimes to avoid embarrassing the government. The Bureau's suspected propaganda operation 
involved both the media and the World Wide Web. Thomas Colbert found a specific entry written on DropZone.com, which is a blog for people who research D.B. Cooper. An FBI Norjack agent named Larry Carr had made a post that said, quote, There are 1,057 sub-files in the Cooper case, each representing a subject that has been investigated. There is not one piece of verifiable evidence linking a subject to the case, end quote. Now, this is around the time that the airlines had to have the Cooper vanes installed, which were made so nobody could let down the stairs from the inside like D.B. Cooper did. There were a few copycats before the installment. The D.B. Cooper incident changed the way that our airlines handled security measures. This is basically when they started X-ray. And that's, you know, another point is that incidents like this and throughout history have definitely changed, you know, air travel to what it is today, right? Yep. Yeah. It was kind of the start of the whole taking off your shoes and all of that fun stuff. But right. Yeah. And that, you know, that and that was, you know, a period of time where the airlines were just giving what the ransom, you know, what ransom, ransomer, well, that is not a word, giving the ransoms, you know, to people who were hijacking the planes and so on and so forth. You know, they gave up whatever the, the person wanted. They were giving it to them. Yeah. And a lot of that was because they didn't want the bad press. Like they didn't want to be the airline that didn't give, you know, the hijacker what they wanted and then have something happen where it created a huge scandal. Like if someone got hurt or, you know, things like that. So it was kind of like, yep, just give them what they want because we don't want any bad press. So spraying luggage and all of those kind of things to add to the unfavorable FBI records. Thomas had his own team of volunteer investigators who were led by many former FBI agents. They went on to discover more than 100 items which implicated Robert Rackstraw. They found physical evidence, DNA, forensic evidence, as well as things that were told to them, as in gossip and hearsay, as well as documents that held evidence. Thomas wanted to get opinions on everything they had gathered from top-notch experts. One of these people being Joseph P. Russo-Niello. He used to be an FBI agent, U.S. attorney, and a San Fran Law School dean. Joseph said, quote, I've reviewed the materials provided by your investigative team and have concluded that the evidence is clear and convincing that Rackstraw was Cooper. So, this information pretty much came out in 2019, but all of this was first known to the FBI in 2015. Thomas Colbert recently got his hands on the FBI emails and transcripts, which did say that the director's senior executives dismissed a collaboration that they had going on for five years with Thomas and his investigative team and that they would no longer be accepting any of their work and what they find. So, by what Thomas says, 
The FBI lied about everything in 2016 when they said they looked at all of the evidence, debunked it all by saying it was just not strong enough evidence, and in the end, the FBI said there is not anything new out there about D.B. Cooper. Thomas's investigative... And that's where the conspiracy is born, you know? It, yep. it's, uh, that's where, you know, the internet goes crazy with situations like this is because, you know, there's cover-ups or they don't release everything, and and then people's imagination run, runs wild, right? Yeah, and I found it interesting when Paige mentioned earlier that he had ties to the government as far as like the CIA and things like that, where I could definitely see them hushing it up because they don't want to look stupid. Like we had this guy, he was working for us and he did this, he committed this crime under our noses, you know, and we still let him get away, you know, like that's something that I definitely could see them being like, we can't let anybody know about this. (laughs) (laughs) Right. The other way. (laughs) Team took note of Robert Rackstraw's army picture from 1970, and they found that in an old file from the Pentagon. It was said that the picture had nine points of match when it was put next to the sketch of D.B. Cooper. So, I mean, that's where, you know, the picture comes in, uh, which, again, I will, you know, share that in the show notes for everybody to look at them. But in my opinion, I just don't see it. Not with this guy. Uh, there's there's some similarities, but it's not mm-hmm. it's not an exact match. And I understand a sketch artist isn't going to be 100 percent. Right. Yep. Um, but I just don't see it. I don't see like I said, there's some similarities, but the eyes are what, you know, is telling to me, really. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, you know, his eyes kind of slant, you know, towards his ears down mm-hmm. as to where in the, in the, the, the sketch, they don't, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Well, and in, lis- in hearing about this guy, he reminds me a lot of, um, Frank Abagnale, who was the main um, character in the Catch Me If You Can movie, where he was also a con artist that got away with a bunch of stuff. When he was like 18, he was able to (laughs) fly a plane because people thought he was a pilot. Um, And he had similar things where he worked for the government for a while and then um, managed to run away with a bunch of money that he'd laundered. Great movie, by the way. It is a great movie. Awesome movie. Um, so if you haven't watched it, I highly recommend you check it out, but, um, yeah. And I find it very interesting that they were like, oh, the ransom money, he invested it in certain things. Well, as we have seen with, when they discovered that money in like the eighties that was buried, you know, they had all the serial numbers. So it's like, if you saw these investments that someone had made with the serial numbers, wouldn't that be enough for you to be like, this is this, this is the guy, you know what I mean? Like you would think that would be like a huge red flag. Like, Oh, Hey, where'd this guy get this money that, you know, we marked that (laughs) we know was part of the ransom. You know what I mean? Like, 
So if that was true, why wouldn't they have used that as, you know, a huge win? Like this is, this is the guy, you know, like there's, there's no doubt about it. And if it isn't him, where did he get the money? Right. And that's, you know, that's the, which I just thought about that while you were talking. And there's a lot of laws now to where you can't go and deposit anything over $10,000 without having some kind of identification as to where you got the money. Right. Yep. So, I mean, this probably one incident probably influenced while it might not have changed everything. It definitely influenced a lot of different things that we encounter now. Right. Yeah. Like, like you said, you can't just go into a bank and be like, here's $200,000. I'm going to deposit this, just <laughs> right. this, this suitcase of cash into my bank account. You know, right. like, right. oh, that's totally cool. That's fine. Like, <laughs> hey, can you make me a swimming pool of this money real quick so I can dive into it? Yeah. You know, that, that, McDuck that style. <laughs> right. That just doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. So, but, um, yeah, I just don't see it with this guy. I, while he's got the knowledge and the extensive know-how to do it, and I just, if we're going strictly based off of pictures, I just, I don't see it. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with you. So Robert Rackstraw fit the FBI profile and he had the skills to make a bomb and skydive. And we can't really dismiss any of these facts. So what would the possible motive be for Robert Rackstraw to do this in the first place? Well, it had been five months since Robert was kicked out of the Special Forces training for lying about his rank, his medals, and saying that he was college-educated when actually he dropped out of high school and never went to college. So he is a known liar. Let's keep that in mind. So right there, we have some motive, right? He got kicked out for lying, and and he's already a proven liar, so... Yeah, and and it's like, you know, especially with serial liars, it's it's usually about how much can I add to this to make the lie seem plausible without making it super, like, over the top, you know? Like, and there's never a point where they're like, Oh yeah, I totally made that up because you can never go back once you're once you've started the lie. So there's and and there's always this point where you once you start looking at things, you're like, well, that's a contradictory statement to what you did, you know, however long ago. So it's yeah, if if he was a known liar and was able to lie about you know his education and all these medals and things like that. Of course, you'd have to question anything else he said. Right, from that point moving forward. Yeah. Robert sent his former brass a veiled threat that says, I can only hope that I will never use the training and education the Army gave me against the Army itself, as I would be a formidable adversary. Shortly after this is when the hijacking happened. Coincidence? Or not? What do you think? And, you know, so right there, he's already got the balls to to yeah. threaten the U.S. government. You know, like, hey, fuck yeah. you guys. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to come after you guys pretty much. Yeah, that's pretty ballsy to I, just be like, uh, yeah, 
<laughs> right. So after the hijacking, Robert Rackstraw wanted to do more. He loved adventure and getting tangled up with authorities. He trained the Shah's pilots to fly choppers in Iran before Iran was known to be more radical. He printed and distributed phony checks to banks. He would steal cars as well as airplane and construction equipment. Then after disappearing with 22 cases of dynamite and weapons from an armory, authorities think he would sell them off to many different extremist groups of bombers. A few months later, Robert was captured and he served two years of jail time. He had over 30 criminal titles while traveling in five countries with false identities. So, pretty much, that's it. I mean, Robert Rackshaw was a career criminal, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, with ties to the military, because being in the military doesn't necessarily mean that you're not a criminal. You're just a uniformed criminal, right? Yep. So, I don't know. What's your takeaways from Robert Rackstraw? Me, personally, I don't think it's him. While he might have the extensive knowledge, I'm just, I'm not sold on this guy. Yeah, and I feel like if it was him, with all the skills that he has, wouldn't he want to do something bigger? You know what I mean? Like, it just seems like he could have done something a little more grand. And based off what he said, you would think he would have done it more as something against the military as opposed to something against the government at large. And he doesn't strike corporation, right? Yeah. Like he he didn't strike me based off everything that we heard as someone would, who would have sort of put any people, anyone outside of his own agenda in harm's way, if that makes sense. Like he didn't seem like someone who would necessarily want to involve outsiders in um, the crime. Right. And that's, that's, you know, that's a good point is that while he was a criminal, he didn't really, you know, have a lot of partners and a lot of people that he, you know, it sounded like in his life. So he probably wouldn't want to harm people and he wouldn't want to put a lot of people in danger. And which is why, you know, somebody like this would probably be somebody who's very recluse or, or, you know, very antisocial. Yep. Yeah. He just didn't strike me as somebody who, considering the the types of crimes that he had under his belt, none of them were necessarily like violent crimes. Like any, so it, it would seem very out of character for him to all of a sudden threaten a plane full of people with a bomb in order to get the money that he wanted. So it just didn't see it just to me, that's kind of stood out like, well, he wasn't a violent criminal. So why out of all of a sudden would he be like, Oh, I'm going to potentially kill, you know, a plane full of passengers. Not that I think he would have actually gone through with it, but just the idea that he would have, you know, even put people in danger in that kind of sense. So that was another thing that kind of stood out to me. Right. But then again, you know, you can't, that's the crazy part about conspiracy theories, right? Mm -hmm. Is that you can't discount anything. Yep. So this guy could potentially be him, but you know, at the same time, we don't know and we're speculating and he could not be. So yep. that's the fun part about conspiracy theories, right? Yeah. Well, and he's dead. So it's not like we could we could ask him and be like, hey, guy. <laughs> right. Hey, so did you do this? Did you not do this? Yeah. You're not going to tell us anyways, right? Yeah. And, I, you know, I would think, I don't know, I would think somebody who 
pulled something off like this unless they were one of those kind of people that didn't have that personality trait, but they would want that that recognition, you know, exactly. that, that notoriety. You know what? I'm D.B. Cooper. I pulled this shit off. You know what I mean? And, and yeah. I feel like his personality is like that. He would want that 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 accolade, I guess, in a sense, right? Yep. Of, hey, look at me and look what I did, especially on your deathbed. At that point, what do you have to lose? You're not going to go to jail. You're dying. Exactly. Yeah. I, I 100% agree with you. Like he had enough of a narcissistic personality where I could definitely see him being like, you know, wanting that recognition of, you know, it was me. And now for some thoughts from Paige on Robert Rackshaw. I mean, there's no question that Robert loved the thrill of possibly being caught. He loved adventure and doing all of these things that he wasn't supposed to be doing. He just seemed to really love the thrill of everything. So I go back and forth with him because... You could see him doing something like the D.B. Cooper hijacking, but at the same time, he's a liar, and I just tend to struggle with him personally. So, Robert had been married three times. He was a dad, a grandfather, and great-grandfather. He got a divorce from the third and last wife, but he kept living with her. They lived together in the rich Bankers Hill area of San Diego, California, for about 20 years. Now, Robert was an owner of a boat shop. He had a Coronado Precision Marine along with a 45-foot cruiser, and he named it Poverty Sucks. In 1978, he was asked if he was D.B. Cooper, and he said, quote, Could have been. Could have been. Well, before he died, he was asked again and again about being D.B. Cooper. People really wanted to know. And he said, quote, I'm probably one of the only people who can close the case. Now, he spoke with the cops in 2016 about the money that was found by the little boy. And he said, quote, I could be wrong, but I believe that's all that will be found. Thomas J. Colbert said that Robert Rackstraw even told his family that he was D.B. Cooper. The FBI told reporters back in 1971 that there's no way someone could have survived that jump. And that is another thing that I tend to personally battle with because anything is possible. I struggle with, could this person have survived that jump and no remains were ever found? Could they have been found by people that he knew and that were waiting for him at this particular spot or area and they dumped his body somewhere? There are so many possibilities about this case. But the FBI had secretly interviewed some witnesses who were farmers, and they said that there were three people that acted as D.B. Cooper's getaway accomplices that had a little plane ready to go, and when he got to the ground, they took off with him. 
So Thomas J. Colbert's team located two of these alleged accomplices. The money that was found was said by many people to private investigators that it had been put there by Robert to throw police and investigators off the trail and just confuse them. Robert did fly helicopters for an intelligence part of the U.S. Army's 1st Cavalry Division during the Vietnam War. He made friends with the CIA operative, and the two would go missing for days at a time on secret missions, according to LTC Ken Overturf, who was Robert's Vietnam commander in 1969. This is according to court records, that after his assumed 1971 hijacking of the plane, he was a pilot for the CIA's Air American and Lowe's. Ten years after that, he signed up to run undercover flights during the Iran-Contra affair in Nicaragua. Robert Rackstraw said to a friend on Facebook, quote, Everything I did for our government raised questions. Former U.S. intelligence officer and three-tour Vietnam codebuster Rick Sherwood was one of the guys on Thomas Colbert's team back in 2015. He examined six letters that were written by someone that claimed to be D.B. Cooper. These letters were to basically tease and taunt everyone after he just seemed to vanish. How Thomas Colbert got the letters was from the FBI's D.B. Cooper file using a court order. So, Rick Sherwood claims that the second letter that was sent was an army code. And he decoded the letter and he said it read, If catch, I am CIA. So Thomas Colbert's theory is that the FBI cut off him and his investigative team's years of working with them because they were getting way too close to having so much information that could prosecute Robert Rackstraw, and the FBI did not want that to happen. According to Thomas, the FBI wanted to protect Robert's CIA missions that were going on overseas. Thomas stated, quote, It was a cover-up, and we now have the FBI's own files to prove Rackstraw was the prime suspect. Everything points to him. He was questioned by investigators in 1978, and he gave three different alibis, all proven to be false but the FBI still let him remain free. After Robert passed away, his former lawyer, Dennis Roberts, said, quote, He's not D.B. Cooper. However, oddly enough, attorney Dennis Roberts said that Robert Rackstraw was to blame for another unsolved airplane hijacking which would make it seem like this is why he never sued anyone accusing him of being D.B. Cooper. Dennis Roberts said, quote, It would have meant that he would have to admit to the second unsolved hijacking. But by all reports that I've come across, and Kevin, as you mentioned in your episode, 
The D.B. Cooper hijacking is the only unsolved hijacking case. So, which other unsolved skyjacking could Dennis Roberts even be referring to? That's super confusing to me. Even though Robert Rackstraw said on his deathbed the assumptions that he was D.B. Cooper were absolutely tearing his life apart, he remained playful and teasing about it until he took his last breath. He said, They say I'm him. If you want to believe it, believe it. So, in my personal opinion, which I know a lot of people will disagree with because it does seem like he could be D.B. Cooper, and of course it's a possibility, but for some reason, I just get this feeling that he liked being considered a suspect. I think he loved the attention and thought he was a mysterious man carrying all these secrets to the grave, and he may just love that and found some kind of enjoyment out of having people really thinking that he was D.B. Cooper. However, it's always a toss-up because maybe he was. Well, that was Robert Rackstraw, and so now we're going to move on to another suspect that I feel like is another very viable candidate, and we'll go ahead and introduce him now. William J. Smith. So, there was an anonymous U.S. Army data analyst that came to the conclusion that William was D.B. Cooper. And this part does get confusing, so kind of focus with me because there is a Dan Clare mentioned in this part and a Dan LeClaire. So, it can get a little confusing, but try to stick with me on this. So this expert, who remains anonymous, read a book written by Max Gunther in 1985 called D.B. Cooper, What Really Happened, which played a huge part in this anonymous expert formulating his beliefs. Max Gunther wrote in the book that in 1972, a man who said he was D.B. Cooper got in touch with him. Well, this unknown mystery man ultimately decided to quit talking with Max. Therefore, Max had to unfortunately leave the story where it was and try to move on from it. However, a woman who said her name was Clara, then this was 10 years after Max's book, which actually went into detail about Clara and D.B. Cooper. So this Clara woman decided that she would reach out to Max and tell him that she was Dan LeClaire's widow and that he was the mysterious man who told Max that he was D.B. Cooper. Max's book was basically called out for being bogus and a lot of people never took it seriously and they portrayed it as somewhere in between nonfiction and speculation. Now, there were some things in this book that were said to be fallacious. This was either due to Clara attempting to hide who she really was, or Max just pulling things out of thin air and writing about it as if it were true. An FBI agent even talked to Max Gunther, and he essentially sacked him and said he was highly unprofessional. 
However, the anonymous analyst was not moved by any of the doubts casted on Max. He believed wholeheartedly that Max was in communication with someone who was claiming to be D.B. Cooper. The analyst kept drudging along with his research and going down the rabbit holes until he came across a man named Dan Clare. Dan Clare died in 1990 and was a veteran of World War II. The more the analyst dug into the rabbit hole, the more he didn't think Dan Clare was their guy, but he believed that Dan's buddy and co-worker was the mysterious D.B. Cooper, and that is William J. Smith. William and Dan worked together at Penn Central Transportation. William passed away at the age of 89. However, his yearbook had an array of alumni who were murdered in World War II. There was a man that really caught the eye of the data analyst, Ira Daniel Cooper. So, Dan Clare and William Smith, they were both from New Jersey and they both worked at a rail yard in Oak Island in Newark. The U.S. Army data expert discovered that William served in the U.S. Navy. William and Dan had all of this experience working on railroads, which is important because they could map out railroad tracks and find them with total ease. This means that would have assisted either one of them after parachuting from the plane to easily find a train nearby and hitch a ride back to New Jersey. The analyst said, I believe he would have been able to see Interstate 5 from the air. Also, there was a rail line at the time that ran parallel to the roadway. So that's, you know, that's another good theory is that after jumping out of the plane, disappear onto a train and you can pretty much at that point disappear to anywhere. Exactly. Yeah, because that was, we have to keep in mind this was during the 70s. So that was a time, too, where, like, with the plane, you just pay cash to, you know, get to ride anything. And they didn't have very good records. You could give whatever name you wanted to be a passenger. And at that point in time, no one would have known that that's who it was when he got on the train. And, you know, who knows what kind of name he would have given to be able to ride the rails. And I feel like it'd be very easy to get lost amongst a bunch of passengers on a train, especially if you're taking multiple trains. Right. And even if he didn't get on a passenger train, just disappearing onto a cargo train in Mm -hmm. the middle of the forest after jumping off a plane, you know, and then jumping off in some little city, you know, outside some little town and disappearing within the community, it's not out of the realm of possibility. Exactly. And I feel like someone who would pull off um, a crime like this would be very adept at um, hiding in plain sight. Right. 
being, you know, being that uh, your typical next door neighbor. Yep. No problems, you know, a wife, kids, picket fence, because, you know, that was, you know, the MO of, of the 70s was, you know, you got to, oh, well, then, you know, the free love and all that. But, you know, you got married and had kids and that's just, that's what you did, right? Yep. Yeah. The analyst has this theory that William Smith used his friend that died in World War II's name. He believes he called Max, and after that, the wife of William Smith, whose real name is Dolores, not Clara, took over the conversation after William stopped communicating with Max. The analyst thinks that maybe Dolores was in on everything this whole time. There was another reason why this could be the work of William Smith. He had a huge grudge against Penn Central. The place went bankrupt in 1970, and it put thousands of people out of a job, including William. Our Anon analyst says that he was probably furious with the corporate establishment and that anger and madness could have been motivation for William to come up with the plan of hijacking the airplane. What's really weird is that the FBI never responded to the data experts' research. I think that's because they pretty much had their own minds made up on D.B. Cooper being Robert Rackstraw, or maybe they knew that William Smith could possibly be D.B. Cooper, and they just didn't want to really acknowledge that or come to terms with it or something. I don't know. It's really weird. So, remember, Max said that he spoke to a man with the last name LeClaire. I know this can get so confusing. And before we keep going, I wanted to stop and talk about that for a second, is the the investigations, you know, part Mm -hmm. of so many crimes from before. Even now, investigators, for whatever reason, hone in on one person or one theory. Mm -hmm. And then that's it. Like they don't branch out. They don't look everywhere else because, you know, like Paige said, they already had their mind made up. Yeah. Rackstraw was their main suspect. Why are they going to look anywhere else? Exactly. And it was interesting, the motivation that he had to commit this crime. Whereas I feel like with Rackstraw, there wasn't really a motivation for the crime other than his um, anger towards the military, which what, how does that transition over to corporate America, corporate America and specifically the airlines. So I can definitely see how William had more motivation to commit this crime, given that, you know, he'd lost his job and not only he lost his job, but, Thousands of other people had lost their jobs um, and kind of used this as kind of a screw you type of thing back at the corporate America. The establishment, the man. Taking down the man. (laughs) But, and that's, you know, I feel like that's more of a viable explanation for this crime. Like if you're looking for an explanation, it's got to be, you know, somebody going against, you know, 
they were pissed. You know, Boeing went bust in the area. Um, you know, so why, why I, like you said, I don't know why they would, somebody with who's angry at the military would translate to the civilian world, right? Yeah. They would go after the military and not some random airline for a couple hundred thousand bucks. Yeah, exactly. Well, Dan Claire and this other Dan LeClaire both just happened to live in New Jersey after being in World War II. Dan Claire was previously posted at Fort Lewis in Washington State, and that's 41 miles south of Seattle. The FBI concluded that D.B. Cooper knew his way around Seattle before he hijacked that plane. Okay, Kevin, you remember the clip-on tie that you mentioned that was left behind on the plane? Well, it had a piece of metal on it, which made the investigators think that he was possibly employed at Boeing. But the analysts thought someone who worked on railroads could have had that same type of metal. Going back to Max Gunther's book, he said that LeClaire attended a skydiving facility that was close to Los Angeles, California in 1971. It has only been recently that the FBI even let the public know that it is extremely likely that this D.B. Cooper character went to a facility just like the one Max talked about in his book. And there you go. More misinformation, more Mm -hmm. misleading the public, not sharing all the facts. And I understand investigations. You can't share all the facts because you potentially could lose the trial if you were able to take them to justice. But, Mm -hmm. you know, again, that just adds the fuel to that fire, you know, of, you know, you're you're misleading us. Why aren't you telling us everything? And again, more mistrust. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting that he was so familiar with the area. Um, Like going back to kind of knowing where to jump once he, um, once they were like, we can't go to Mexico. There's no way we could do that without having to stop and refuel. Um, So you would have had, they would have had to know if there was a backup where they could jump and still be able to kind of disappear, especially if they were very familiar with that area. Right. And you would have to be, especially with that forest, you know, jumping into and potentially, you know, on a, on a night where it was cold, there were storms and you still have to know where you're going to an extent to be able to get out instead of just dying in the forest. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I have a picture of this one and this one Oh, man, I feel like you couldn't get any closer. And again, we know it's a sketch and sketches aren't perfect, um, but they're damn near a spitting image of each other. Mm -hmm. Like the chin, the facial structure, the bone structure, like literally everything is spot on, in my opinion. Yeah, even like the placement of like the wrinkles under the eyes, the wrinkles on the forehead, you know, like the the frown lines, things like that. Like it's just spot the mouth, on. I mean, the nose structure, literally it's like, it's like you're looking almost in the mirror. Yep. The shape of the ears. Cause the ears are a little bit oddly shaped. Cause they do point out a little bit, but at the same time, like, yeah, 
it's basically just like an aged an age progression of the sketch. It's pretty spot on. So as I was doing some digging for alternate suspects and so on, I thought this was funny uh, on this website that I had found, which I will link to the show in the show notes below. But there is uh, a theory out there that Don Draper from Mad Men is DB <laughs> Cooper, right? So, um, Obviously, uh, uh, Don Draper isn't real, right? Mm -hmm. But at this point, neither is D.B. Cooper because nobody can figure out who he is, right? Yep. So I vote for Don Draper, but social media has brought it to my attention so kindly that uh, they think it's Loki because there's a scene in the new Loki show where he's sitting in an airplane uh, with sunglasses on and it looks just like him. So maybe yep. it's Loki. Yep. Yeah, it's hard. Who's to say? <laughs> <laughs> we could speculate for hours, right? Exactly. <laughs> Any final thoughts? Any closing sentiments? Your thoughts, opinions, theories, people it could be? I would say of the two that Paige discussed, my money's on William J. Smith. Like, just... Based off the motive, he would have had he would have had similar knowledge having served in the war, you know, um, knowing his way around planes, having worked on them, knowing his way around railroads, knowing kind of where they were hidden. And even if you were in the air, you know, you would still know where to easily find them if you were uh, paratrooping in or parachuting in you know, look at the sketch and look at the photos. (laughs) I just, of all the suspects, I feel like that's the guy. I am 100% with you. And I definitely agree that it would take somebody with an extensive knowledge of the forest, of, of railroads, of not even an extensive knowledge of jumping out of a plane, but just, knowing, okay, where you need to jump and how to get to a place where you need to be to potentially get away from it. So out of everybody that I've discussed in my episode and we've discussed today, I definitely think William J. Smith is probably the likely the closest suspect that we'll probably ever see to solving this case. Yep. For some reason, even though so, so many people think Robert Rackstraw is the infamous D.B. Cooper, I really think it's William. I think the fact that he looks more like D.B. Cooper than Rackstraw is a huge factor for me. Um, But I'd also love your opinion on both of the pictures and the sketch together. I think that William had a better motive. I think that he probably did take the name of someone that died and used that name. I just think that that is more convincing to me, possibly, than the whole Robert Rackstraw um, story. I really think that Robert was just an attention seeker. Why don't you tell everybody again where they can find you at, where they can find your podcast at, what you guys are about, and so on and so forth. Sure. Uh, Thank you again for having me on the show today. Um, Once again, I'm Lindsay from Yield Crime Podcast. 
Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Yield Crime Pod, and we're on Instagram at Yield Crime Podcast. Uh, you can also visit our website if you want, which is yieldcrimepodcast.com. We're basically on pretty much any of the podcast apps and platforms that we have out there. Um, we release episodes every Wednesday, and then every couple weeks we release uh, special segments on Saturdays called Can You Crack the Cramp Word, um, where we will actually be having one in the end of this month, I believe, the end of July, where Kevin was kindly on. And uh, <laughs> that was very fun. Having it was you on. fun. That was, that was, uh, it's an interesting subject because, in which when, when this episode's released, you guys will hear it, but, um, they there's say you know there's words that people say from from that that time period that you would think one thing and it's like completely different oh yeah it's like completely in left field like the, like there's no way you would have made the connection with that victorian slang to what it actually meant so um that's probably one of my favorite segments to do is to have people on and see if they can crack the cramp word so <laughs> um yeah, so that's kind of about our show and where you can find us. And thank you again for having me on. Not a problem. And before we go, I have one question for you. Do you sure. mind answering? Sure. If you could be one sandwich condiment, what would you be and why? Mm. What sandwich condiment would I be? I'd be spicy mayo because I'm a little bit sassy. <laughs> Spicy mayo. I yes. like it. So Lindsay from the Ye Old Crime Podcast is spicy mayo. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, again, thanks for coming on. I'm glad we got to sit down and do this. Um, everybody, make sure you go and check her out. Like she said, towards the end of the, this month in July, um, you're going to get a, a, a bonus episode for me because yep. I went on her podcast. So, um, But again, thanks for coming on, and I hope you have a good day. You as well. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room. get away with murder. Since 1980, more than 250,000 cases have gone cold, where either a murder took place or a missing person was considered to have experienced serious bodily harm. Needless to say, there's a cold case crisis in America. But we believe families deserve answers. Victims deserve a voice. And no one should be a statistic. I'm Anna Eaglin. I'm Jim Brown. I'm Ashley Fujawa, and we're the co-founders of Uncovered where we're empowering the true crime community to turn their interests into advocacy by combining all publicly available information with an engaged membership to crowdsource gaps in the investigation of unsolved cases of the murdered or missing. By combining all information in a comprehensive database, visualizing the timeline of events, and overlaying each onto a map of locations, we're bringing case details together in a way that's never been done before. 
our members are able to connect with fellow citizen detectives, learn techniques on what to look for and how to help, and subscribe to the cases that interest them to be updated when new information is found. We count on active participation from our members to submit their research publicly or anonymously through a verification and substantiation process. Together, we can make a difference. Together, we can make a difference. Together, we can make a difference. Will you join us? For more information or to see how you can help, please visit Uncovered.com. Warning. The following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to The Jury Room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. November 24th, 1971 seemed like an ordinary day in Portland, Oregon. It was the day before Thanksgiving, so people were probably hitting the grocery store for a few last-minute items, or setting their dining room table in preparation for the biggest family meal of the year. Many were heading to the airport to catch flights home as the weather turned colder. At around 2 p.m., Northwest Orient Airlines employee Dennis Lenz was operating the ticket desk at Portland's airport when a man who looked to be in his mid-40s moseyed up to the counter. Dressed in a dark suit and tie, holding a briefcase, he asked Dennis for a one-way ticket to Seattle, Washington. The flight was set to depart in just under an hour, and the price of the ticket was just $20. As the man handed over his money, he asked Dennis a peculiar question. That's a 727, right? The man was referring to the model of the Boeing airplane that would take him from Portland to Seattle. Dennis confirmed the plane was a Boeing 727, gave the man his ticket, and went on about his day as usual. He wouldn't learn until later that he had just sold an airline ticket to the man who would pull off the only unsolved skyjacking in American history, the mysterious D.B. Cooper. The Boeing 727 was a compact commercial aircraft designed to cater to outlier airports with shorter runways. The first one rolled off production lines in November of 1962. And during its 22-year production run, ended up becoming one of the most successful commercial jets of all time. What makes the Boeing 727 important in this story is that it had a rear staircase that could be deployed just beneath the aircraft's tail. The Boeing 727 that would take Cooper from Portland to Seattle was Flight 305, and the short 30-minute hop was its last flight of the day. A crew of six manned Flight 305. First Officer Bill Radizak, co-pilot Captain William Scott, Flight Engineer Harold Anderson were all in the cockpit. 
while Alice Hancock, Florence Schaffner, and Tina Mucklow served as flight attendants in the cabin. While the crew readied the flight for takeoff, an unassuming man boarded the plane. No one took particular notice of him. He looked like a businessman heading to his next destination. Clean cut, nicely dressed, and carrying a briefcase. He took his seat in the very last row of the plane, row 18, and ordered a bourbon and 7-up from the flight attendant. The seat he picked was right in front of the fold-down galley seats the flight attendants occupied during takeoff and landing. The name on his ticket read, Dan Cooper. Right as the plane took off, Cooper handed a note to the flight attendant, Florence Schaffner. Schaffner, who was 23 at the time, put the note in her jacket pocket without reading it. This was 1971, when flight attendants were marketed by airlines for their beauty and desirability. It was an era when a woman was expected to resign when she became pregnant. Schaffner was used to being hit on and didn't pay much attention when a lonely man slipped her a note with his phone number on it. But after a few moments, Cooper said, Miss, I think you better have a look at that note. I have a bomb. Schaffner unfolded the note and her breath hitched as she read it. Miss, I have a bomb in my briefcase. I will use it if necessary. I want you to sit next to me. You are being hijacked. Schaffner showed the note to her co-flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, who immediately went and sat beside Cooper. She asked to see the bomb. He opened the case, and she saw a tangled mess of red and blue wires attached to several long red cylinders she assumed were dynamite. Now that she was taking this seriously, Cooper had her write a new note for him. It was a list of ransom demands to be taken to the captains and transmitted to the authorities on the ground. Cooper wanted the following. $200,000 in negotiable currency, four parachutes including two main and two reserve chutes, and a fuel truck standing by at the Seattle-Tacoma airport. Tina Mucklow stayed in the seat besides Cooper and lit cigarettes for him because he refused to take his finger off the bomb trigger. Schaffner walked to the cockpit. Once inside, she dropped the note in Captain Scott's lap. The situation was frightening for the pilots, and not just because they were being hijacked. By 1971, commercial airline hijackings happened almost weekly in the United States. Most of the time, the hijackings were political and natural. The perpetrators almost always wanted to be taken to Cuba. In an interview for the 2020 HBO documentary about D.B. Cooper, the first officer described these routine hijackings as almost a little hilarious, saying they would take a detour down to Cuba, the passengers would get off the plane and buy some cigars and booze, and then they would all fly home. No one had hijacked a plane for money before. Cooper upped the stakes. What would happen if they couldn't get the money in time? Would this guy blow up the plane and kill everyone on board? While trying to keep a steady head and banishing thoughts of being blown to bits in the middle of the sky, 
Radizak radioed air traffic control and informed them that Flight 305 was being hijacked and gave them Cooper's demands. Air traffic control called the FBI, and within minutes, every FBI in the vicinity of Seattle was en route to Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. Cooper was smart. He made the pilots circle above the airport for two and a half hours until the money and parachutes were on site. The passengers aboard Flight 305 never had a clue what was happening. Radizak announced to the cabin via intercom that there was a minor mechanical issue and the flight attendants moved everyone seated near Cooper to the seats in front of row 14, citing a weight distribution problem. No one protested, and passengers reported they didn't even realize they were involved in a hijacking until they were off the plane. Tina Mucklow kept her seat next to Cooper the entire time they were in the air. She chatted with him and tried to keep the situation calm. Perhaps the most famous quote remembered from their conversations was when Tina asked Cooper if he had a grudge with the airline. No, Cooper replied. I don't have a grudge with your airline. I just have a grudge. Most people regard Tina as a hero for her actions throughout this ordeal. She spent upwards of five hours with Cooper. She later told the press that Cooper was nothing but a gentleman, that he never treated any of them unkindly or behaved in a nasty way, but he did want his money. Flight 305 landed in Seattle shortly after 5.30 p.m., and Cooper instructed the pilots to park far away from the airport terminals. He also had Tina direct the passengers to close their window shades while he hid in the airplane laboratory. This was done under the pretense of keeping the plane cool. But in reality, Cooper was worried about snipers positioned on the tarmac waiting to take him out. While the passengers waited obliviously on board, Cooper sent Tina out to the tarmac to collect the money. He had requested the 200000 to be brought to him in a duffel bag, but the FBI ensured the airline funds were bought to him in a handless money bag. It was a complication Cooper would prove to overcome. Once he had the money, Cooper allowed the flight attendants to evacuate the passengers. He also let Alice Hancock and Florence Schaffner go, but kept Tina as a hostage along with the pilot crew. Again, Tina was sent outside to get the parachutes, and she had to make several trips to bring all four aboard. According to the flight crew, the only time things got tense with Cooper was during the refueling process. Because plane hijackings were so common, major airlines usually gave the assailant what they wanted rather than cause a major incident that may result in injury or death. Or worse, bad press for the airline. The FBI, however, was of a different opinion. They didn't think they should acquiesce to the hijackers' demands and were more willing to throw up roadblocks to a hijacker's success. In this case, putting the cash in a money bag without handles rather than a convenient-to-carry duffel bag 
and mucking up the refueling process. Realistically, it should have only taken the ground crew around 30 to 45 minutes to refuel that plane. But their refueling trucks kept having quote-unquote issues. As the minutes ticked by, Cooper communicated with the pilots via Tina and the intercom that there better not be any funny business going on. It took a call from the first officer and four total gas trucks to get the plane refueled. Finally, they were ready to depart. On the plane, it was just Cooper, Tina, the first officer, Captain Scott, and flight engineer Anderson. No one but Cooper knew what was about to happen. But given the parachutes, they suspected Cooper planned to skydive out of the airplane with the money. Cooper told the pilots he wanted to fly straight to Mexico City. But Radizak informed him they would need to stop and refuel. Reno was the agreed-upon location for the refuel. And the FBI immediately deployed agents on the scene there. In fact... The FBI was already chasing down leads on suspects named Cooper living in the area, which is how the hijacker got his famous initials, D.B. They started with the name on the flight manifest, Dan Cooper. The FBI called local detectives in Portland who told them they knew of a local criminal named D.B. Cooper. During this exchange, a Portland reporter named Clyde Javin was within earshot and immediately wired the name back to his newspaper editors. It turned out cat burglar D.B. Cooper had nothing to do with the Flight 305 hijacking. But from that moment on, Dan Cooper became known as D.B. Cooper, and he's been known as such ever since. Cooper had a few specific demands for the actual flight. The pilots were to keep the plane speed below 200 miles per hour while setting the wing flaps at 15 degrees. They were to go no higher than 10,000 feet, keep the landing gear deployed at all times, and maintain a depressurized cabin. Cooper also wanted them to lower the passenger staircase at the back of the plane and take off with it deployed. But Captain Scott and Radizak refused to do this last demand on the advice of their airline's operations boss. After a short argument, Cooper relented. It wasn't worth the time. He needed to get out of Seattle fast. The plane took off at 7.36 p.m. as the rain began to fall. The temperature was in the low 20s. Cooper's speed of less than 200 miles per hour coupled with the 10,000 feet altitude kept them off the FBI radar. And now, for a quick break. Hi, I'm Bernadette, the host for Murderific True Crime Podcast, coming to you from the state of Maine, USA. We are a bi-weekly podcast and discuss stories from Maine, New England, and all over the world. Our stories focus on domestic abuse, mass murder, familicides, cults, serial killers, kidnappings, and lesser-known cases. Murderific is easy to find on all podcast apps or go to Murderific.com. 
Give Murderific a try. Remember, murder and horrific equals murderific. Now, back to the show. FBI agents scrambled fighter jets to pursue Flight 305, but they were too fast for the slow-moving plane, and the helicopter they deployed couldn't keep up. Their flight plan is still disputed to this day, but most agree they were somewhere along Vector 23, an eight-mile-long airspace through rural Washington, mostly traveled by private planes to avoid the surrounding mountain peaks. The landscape is a mixture of dense forest and wide-open farmland and most agree that Cooper seemed to know where he was going. At around 7.45 p.m., Cooper had Tina show him how the plane stairs worked. She showed him the lever he needed to pull to deploy the stairs, but asked him for a length of rope to tie herself to the plane so she wouldn't get sucked out. Cooper allegedly assured her that because they were only at 10,000 feet, and the cabin wasn't pressurized, there was no danger of her being drafted out of the airplane. She remained unconvinced, so he asked her to go back to the cockpit. The last she saw of D.B. Cooper, he was lashing the bank bag to his waist using strips he cut from one of the extra parachutes. She closed the first-class cabin curtain behind her and entered the cockpit to await her fate with the rest of the flight crew. A few moments later, Cooper called up to the cockpit via the intercom at the back of the plane. He was having trouble getting the stairs deployed all the way down because the wind was blowing so hard. He told the pilots to reduce the plane speed down to 170 miles per hour, which they did. Then, according to Radizak, at 8.13 p.m., they felt the plane shudder. Cooper had jumped. The weather outside was horrible when Cooper leapt from the plane with nothing but a parachute, a bag of money, and his overcoat. According to retired investigative journalist Bruce Smith, despite official reports that claim it was just another dreary Pacific Northwest night, he interviewed locals who said the storms that night were some of the worst they had ever seen, including torrential downpour, strong winds, and freezing temperatures. Understandably, the search for Cooper had to wait until morning, giving the hijacker at least a 12-hour head start on his pursuers. The ensuing investigation was nicknamed Norjag. The physical search for Cooper in his suspected landing zone was left to local police and searchers as the FBI collected evidence from the plane and statements from witnesses. On the ground, people doubted Cooper could have survived a jump from 10,000 feet in those conditions. But investigators didn't find any sign of Cooper, the parachutes, or the money, leading them to believe he may have gotten away. For unknown reasons... The FBI called off the search the Monday after Thanksgiving in 1971, 
just four days after it began. The FBI collected Cooper's discarded clip-on tie and Mother of Pearl tie clip from the airplane. And in 2001, they were able to extract a small DNA sample from the evidence. Eight cigarette butts believed to be smoked by Cooper were also taken from the plane. Remember, this was 1971, when you could smoke anywhere, including 10,000 feet above the ground in a tube of recirculated air. They also took a few hair samples from Cooper's seat in the 18th row. Where those samples are today, nobody knows. Public opinion surrounding D.B. Cooper idled somewhere between fascination and hero worship. In Seattle especially, people seemed to be rooting for the master criminal who had beaten the system and fooled the man. By November 1971, Seattle and the surrounding areas were several months into an economic recession commonly referred to as the Boeing bust. The Boeing company was the main employer for residents in Seattle. When they lost a huge government contract to build an expensive commercial airline known as the supersonic transport, Boeing laid off half their workforce. The layoffs devastated the local economy and plunged the city into a recession. When news of D.B. Cooper hit the airwaves, people started comparing him to Robin Hood, the famous thief of Sherwood Forest who stole from the rich and gave to the poor. Locals looked upon Cooper with admiration for being able to outsmart the FBI. Meanwhile, officials were left chasing their tails in the search for D.B. Cooper. The next clue came eight and a half years later in 1980, when a young boy discovered $3,000 of rotten bills buried in a sandbar along the Columbia River. Known as Tina Bar, this discovery initially confirmed investigators' thoughts that Cooper had died during the jump from Flight 305 and had lost the money. However, when the FBI brought in a geologist named Dr. Leonard Palmer to analyze the sandbar, his analysis stirred up more questions than it answered. Dr. Palmer determined that the Columbia River had been dredged in 1974, meaning silt and debris had been manually removed from the bottom of the river, causing sand to be pushed up onto the banks. This created layers in the sand on Tina Bar that actually gave Palmer a fairly accurate timeline with which to work. The money had been found there three feet beneath the surface of the sandbar, above the dredge line, meaning it was put there no earlier than 1974. The money was so well preserved, it's highly unlikely that it had been exposed to the elements for very long. The bills would have disintegrated. Because of this, Palmer determined the money was probably deposited in the sand within a year of its discovery in 1980. Well, what does this tell us? Some wonder if Cooper buried the bills for safekeeping. Maybe he lived nearby 
and came back to bury some of his ransom money several years later. No one knows for sure. But new evidence discovered in 2020 added yet another layer to the mystery. Scientist Tom K. analyzed the remnants of the bills uncovered on Tina Bar and found what are called diatoms embedded in the paper. The species of star-shaped algae present on the notes only bloom in the spring. Therefore, we know the money didn't get wet until at least the spring of 1972. At the very least, this proved the money didn't hit the water on the night of November 24th, 1971. But unfortunately, it doesn't tell us much more than that. The FBI received thousands of tips over the years, claiming this person or that person was D.B. Cooper. The case has never been officially solved, though a number of suspects have emerged over the years. On April 7, 1972, five months after the D.B. Cooper hijacking, a man in a dark business suit boarded United Airlines Flight 855 as it stopped for a layover in Denver, Colorado. 20 minutes after takeoff, a fellow passenger noticed the man was holding a hand grenade and immediately told a flight attendant. An off-duty airline pilot, who just happened to be on the flight, was enlisted to casually walk around to see what was going on. But as he got closer to the person with the grenade, the perpetrator pulled a gun, handed him a note, and instructed him to take it to the cabin. It was a list of ransom demands. The man wanted $500,000 in cash and four parachutes, along with fuel trucks standing by. The note had strict instructions about how many people could be near the plane at one time. Once the flight landed in San Francisco, his demands were met by United Airlines. He let the passengers and flight attendant go, and then Flight 855 took off again. The man jumped from the rear staircase of the plane with the money and the parachutes somewhere over Salt Lake City, Utah. No one on board was hurt. When news of the hijacking broke and a composite drawing of the suspect was circulated, a man notified the FBI about a friend who had been talking about hijacking a plane. They picked up Richard Floyd McCoy, aged 29, a Utah Air National Guardsman, a Vietnam veteran, and a skilled skydiver. Police were able to match handwriting samples from McCoy to the notes left aboard the plane. They also matched his fingerprints to one lifted from an in-flight magazine. The most damning evidence of all was the discovery of $500,000 in cash in his home attic. Most law enforcement agents pegged McCoy as the best suspect for the D.B. Cooper hijacking. Not only were their methods of hijacking the same, McCoy bore a striking resemblance to the Cooper composite sketch. Authorities believe McCoy lost the money when he jumped from Flight 305 back in November 1971. 
which is why he had to hijack Flight 855 five months later. McCoy never talked about the Cooper hijacking. Police found evidence he was in Las Vegas on Thanksgiving night, 1971, and it's where they believe he laundered the few thousand dollars he did manage to hang on to from the Cooper hijacking. Others, like journalist Bruce Smith, question this timeline. To him, the fact that he was in Las Vegas Thanksgiving night is hard evidence that McCoy wasn't D.B. Cooper. Unfortunately, no one will ever know. McCoy escaped from prison in 1974 and was subsequently killed in a shootout with FBI agents. Another most recent suspect in the Cooper case is a man named Lynn Doyle Cooper. Marla Cooper, his niece, went to the FBI in 2011, claiming her uncle was the infamous D.B. Cooper. She was later interviewed for the 2020 HBO documentary about the Cooper mystery. As a kid, she remembered around Thanksgiving 1971. Her uncles were discussing something in hushed voices as they were all taking a hike in the woods near her house in Sisters, Oregon. She asked them what they were talking about and they said they were going hunting the following morning. She asked them if they were going turkey hunting for Thanksgiving, and they laughed and told her yes, they were going for a big fat turkey. The following day, she said, she eagerly awaited for them to show up. When she saw their car coming down the street, she ran to the window and saw her uncle L.D., injured and bleeding in the back seat. She told ABC News, quote, My uncle LD was wearing a white t-shirt and he was bloody and a bruised mess and I was horrified. I began to cry. My other uncle who was with LD said, Marla, just shut up and go get your dad. Her father came out and told her to go inside, but she didn't. And she recalled one of them saying, we did it. Our money problems are over. We hijacked that plane. She only saw her uncle LD once more at Christmas the following year. After that, she never heard anything else about him. And her memories of that strange Thanksgiving morning faded away. And now for a quick break. Hey there, movie lovers. This is Dylan, Frank, and Erica, and And this this is our podcast. Our weekly movie reviews cover everything we think, from all-time classics like Pulp Fiction and Friday the 13th, to more modern movies like A Star is Born and The Hangover. And our weekly beverage reviews cover everything you want to drink, from wine and beer to creative cocktails. So get your glass ready and join us weekly wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. Our show is launching on May 4th. Subscribe today so you don't miss a thing. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Drunken Drive-In Podcast and on Twitter at Drunk Drive-In Pod. So remember, movie lovers, drive safe, drink responsibly, and and keep keep watching movies. Now, back to the show. In the 1990s, she asked her father, whatever happened to Uncle L.D.? 
He told her he thought LD was alive, but still hiding from CIA and FBI. She asked him why would he be hiding from the FBI, and her father reportedly said, don't you remember? He hijacked that airplane. Years later, Marla's mother told her she always thought LD was D.B. Cooper, and that was when the memories came flooding back. Marla went to the FBI with an old guitar strap her uncle had made, hoping it might provide fingerprints or DNA they could use to confirm her suspicion. Unfortunately, no conclusive identification had been made. On his deathbed in 1995, Dwayne Weber confessed to his wife, Joe, that he was Dan Cooper. After his death, she discovered numerous fake IDs and other evidence that he was, in fact, a conman, including prison records from when he went by another name. Over the years, she has compiled heaps of evidence that she believes points to the fact that he was telling the truth about hijacking Flight 305 back in 1971. One compelling piece of evidence was a tax return from 1971 that showed he had only made $1,000, but bought two brand new cars right after Thanksgiving. Where did that money come from? She thinks he bought those cars with the hijack money but no clear evidence has ever emerged confirming Dwayne Weber as D.B. Cooper. After 45 years and thousands of leads, the FBI officially closed the Norjack case on July 8, 2016. They include the following in their official statement. The mystery surrounding the hijacking of a Northwest Orient Airlines flight in November 1971 by a still unknown individual resulted in significant international attention and a decades-long manhunt. Although the FBI appreciated the immense number of tips provided by members of the public, none to date have resulted in a definitive identification of the hijacker. The tips have conveyed plausible theories descriptive information about individuals potentially matching the hijacker, and the antidotes to include accounts of sudden, unexplained wealth. In order to solve a case, the FBI must prove culpability beyond a reasonable doubt. And unfortunately, none of the well-meaning tips or applications of new investigative technology have yielded the necessary proof. Every time the FBI assesses additional tips for the Norjack case, investigative resources and manpowers are diverted from programs that more urgently need attention. We will probably never know the true identity of D.B. Cooper. There simply isn't enough evidence, and too much time has passed. But that doesn't stop us from speculating. Who do you think was responsible for the hijacking of Flight 305? If you have a theory, I'd love to hear from you. Your hypothesis might just end up on next week's Aftermath episode, where I will discuss this case with a special guest. Thanks for listening. And remember, 
You never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room.